So when I was in high school, I took a Western civilization class through my school, and it actually counted as college credit. And eventually, because of that class, we eventually got to the discussion about the Crusades in the medieval period, along with kind of talking about the morality question behind the Crusades. And I remember vividly this discussion because during class one day, one of the more staunch atheists in my class started talking angrily about Christians and how horrible they've been throughout human history. And he turned to me, he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, what do Christians have to say about that? And something to keep in mind, I need to be self-deprecating here for a minute. I was that stereotypical cheesy Christian kid in high school. I wore Christian t-shirts all the time with like Bible verses on them. They Graphically, they looked fairly cool, probably not as many to as many people, but I also had this wristband that for some reason I thought was cool. It was black, had a red crown of thorns on it. For some reason, I didn't wear it here. I'd wear it up here. My logic was because that's where I rested my hand on my guitar and my, I played. Um, but it was, I, like, I wasn't exactly shy about the fact that I was a Christian. I made that very, very clear. And to be honest, I don't fully remember my answer that day. That's not what's important and why I'm telling this story. Because what I, want, what I want to focus on is these kinds of moments where you are unexpectedly made to speak about why you follow Jesus and you have to defend your faith comes out of nowhere and you know you have to respond. You can't get away from it and the person's soul who is asking your question is at stake. And so this is something we need to be prepared for because these moments and questions can happen at absolutely any moment. And many of us, if you're like me, might fall into an absolute panic thinking about even the possibility of these moments existing. And so how do we prepare? What do we need to do to be ready? This is what we need to learn this morning. We can have boldness because of what God has done to change us. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 26. If you need a hard cover Bible, they'll be in, on page 1121 in those in the seats in front of you. And we're going to look at three things this morning that can help us have boldness in sharing the gospel with people. And so the book of Acts, it's about the disciples of Jesus continuing the mission of Jesus here on earth to bring Jesus' kingdom to earth and make disciples of all nations. And in our story this morning, Paul is facing trial for preaching the gospel, and he's been taken to stand trial before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And there are a few other key characters we need to first discuss. So who is King Agrippa? Well, he was part of the Herod king of Jewish kings, being a grandson of Herod the Great, who was the king during Jesus' birth, and he ruled Herod Agrippa from A.D. 53 to 100. And so his sister, Bernice, is also appears in this story, but we don't know as much about her, at least in the testimony of the book of Acts. And although Agrippa was part Jewish, he supported Rome during the Jewish revolt in A.D. 66 through 70. And then this other character is going to show up, this man named Festus. And he was the Roman governor of Judea at the time, and not really as much known about him except for what's in the Bible. And so we need to ask, why is Paul standing trial in front of Agrippa at this moment? Well, as I discussed last week, Paul knew that he was going to be arrested in Jerusalem, and that happened in Acts chapter 21. And he had been arrested for preaching about Jesus. 
And so God's plan, though, is seen in Acts 23, 11, where God says to Paul, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so as a result of this trial, Paul is on his way to Rome to speak with Caesar, and there's going to appear to be a mistake made by Paul or incorrect decisions made by rulers about his case. But all of this is in the sovereign plan of God for this to happen so that Paul can go to Rome. And so Paul's legal case has essentially been working its way up through the legal system of Rome for the last two years. However, the Roman leaders did not view that there was any reason for Paul to be put to death or imprisoned and that this was a religious dispute instead. But certain religious leaders wanted to appease the Jews and keep the peace. And so they kept Paul imprisoned as a favor to them. And so in Acts 25, Paul appeals to Caesar, meaning his case is going to be heard by the Roman emperor Nero at the time. And if you know your history, he was not at all favorable to Christians. And so that brings us to our story this morning where Paul is going to present his case to King Agrippa. Let's begin in verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. So here, Paul is seeking to defend himself, but mostly he wants to defend the gospel message he's been proclaiming, and he is going to use his own conversion story to defend it. He's going to claim that because of the way he has lived his life and the way he proclaims the gospel, that there should be no hostility toward him, even from the Jewish people. And then Paul's speaking style in this court case is going to show his level of education and that he was trying to adapt his speaking style to fit the royal audience he was speaking to. And so legally speaking, the Roman governor Festus has handed over Paul's case to Agrippa, the Jewish king, to try and settle this intra-Jewish religious issue rather than trying to force Roman, Roman rule over it. And so the word for defense here is apologia, which is where we get our word apologetics. And that's this idea of having arguments to defend our faith. It just literally means to defend. And so this is exactly what Paul is doing in this story. Verse 2, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so Paul starts off by complimenting Agrippa for his knowledge of Jewish legal issues, which was a common custom of that day to compliment the people that they were standing trial before. And so Paul is hoping here that because of Agrippa's knowledge that that Agrippa is going to understand Paul's case of Jesus being the long-promised Jewish Messiah, and possibly Agrippa would place his faith in Jesus. Verse 4. The Jewish people all knew the way I have li- all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. So now Paul talks about his upbringing. He was a Jew. He grew up in Jerusalem. He lived as a Pharisee, this very strict sect of the Jewish faith. And 
we might need to ask, if you're not totally familiar, who were Pharisees exactly? In a very short description, they added laws to the Jewish law to keep them from disobeying God's law. Thus, they were more strict. And so what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to show the level of obedience and how devoted he was to God. And thus, what he is trying to teach is not such an outcry from what is true of the Jewish faith. Because look at this. Notice that Paul says here, our religion to Agrippa. See, the early Jewish Christians saw that their belief in Jesus was just the next logical step in their faith in God, rather than in creating of a brand new one. Jesus instead was the fulfillment of the Jewish hope of God's plan to redeem and restore the whole world through the Messiah, Jesus. And so for Paul, his preaching of Jesus is not in rebellion to the Jewish faith or a violation to his heritage, but instead it's an overflow from it. It's the next logical step. And there were also likely some Pharisees in, in present, or present at this meeting. And thus Paul is pointing to them saying, you all know how I lived. You remember the way that I was. He's, remember, he's trying to show his devotion. Verse 6. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. So a change has happened for Paul because of what God did through sending his son Jesus to be the Messiah. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, came to dwell among us. He lived a perfect sinless life, died in our place for our sin that we deserved punishment for. But then he rose again three days later, which showed that his death was enough to pay the debt of our sin. And so because he did all of that, people can have hope that when they put their faith in Jesus, they will be made right with God forever and have fellowship with him eternally. You see, for Paul, this faith is not really a new thing, but an old thing made visible and obvious in the next logical step. But as we're going to see in verse 8, the point of contention between Christians and Jews is over Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which is the hope that Paul is talking about here. That, resur- that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the fulfillment of the promised hope given by God to the Israelites for hundreds of years, which the Jewish leaders actually disagreed with because they didn't see Jesus do what they thought he was supposed to do and be the military conquering king. Verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So Paul's logic here is very simple. If someone can believe in an all-powerful God, then it's logical to assume that that God could raise someone from the dead if he so chose to do. But also in that room where Paul is speaking, there were others that had to get through some other barriers in order to believe. For example, the Romans, they did not believe in the resurrection and also some Jewish, another Jewish sect called the Sadducees. And so in our culture, for people to believe in Jesus, we need to understand this. They have to first believe that there are supernatural things that happen. We live in a very naturalistic society. And so many people don't believe that first step. Then they need to believe in a God who could and would act in such a way. 
And these are huge, illogical jumps for them. So don't forget that when you're sharing your faith in Jesus with people. Because it could seem, seem like something that's so simple to you, but it would take a massive leap of several steps of faith for them to become convinced. Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And so because Paul was a Pharisee and he did not believe that Jesus was the long-promised and hoped-for Messiah, he didn't believe that originally. So he believed, now I must stop this faith at any cost. And so he was employed by the chief priests to go and catch new prisons, put them into prison, and possibly have them executed. Verse 11. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So Paul Paul is trying to get Christians to blaspheme, to speak against Jesus, to curse him. And he hunted them down in foreign cities. And all of this is showing how committed Paul was to this venture. You see... Paul is trying to recount his old life before he met Jesus. And so this points us to the first thing we need to have, to have boldness in sharing the gospel. Remember who you were before you met Jesus. You see, even in Paul's letters, we see him use this language, talking about who he used to be, or talking about how people in the churches he was writing to, that they once were a certain way. See, I think as Christians, we can become We can quickly become a graceless people when we forget where we used to be before we met Jesus. We can become judgmental. We can can look down on people. And I know many of you have come from difficult upbringings, addictions, suicidal thoughts, and much more to become a follower of Jesus. So I want to encourage you, never forget who you were and never stop being thankful about how the Lord brought you out of it. But some of you might say to yourself, well, I've never really sinned all that bad. I don't have that kind of story. You see, this was my perspective for the longest time because I grew up in a Christian home. I never fell into the party scene. I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink. I didn't sleep around before I got married. However, what I didn't see was my own prideful heart that put me in rebellion against God. Instead, I needed to see that my pride, my arrogance was as equally offensive to God as what others with bigger testimonies had done. So I was equal. I was on the same plane with them because of my sin and that I had been radically rescued from that in my own life. And in fact, if your story is like mine, rejoice at the fact that God has protected you from those kinds of stories because they are full of heartbreak and pain. I've sat with people dealing with the consequences of their decisions. And even though they're full of redemption and God can do an incredible work. And so I want you to understand, God will work out a unique story for you if you're like me to help you see who you were before you met Jesus and make you bold for him. Verse 12. And on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. So while he was on the way to go and persecute, arrest, and possibly even execute some Christians, Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. 
And Paul testifies that a light that was so blinding that it was brighter than the noonday sun. You have to imagine how bright that would have to be because that is a bright part of the day. And what this means in other parts of scripture, when there's this moment of a brightness and they come before God, they're coming to God face to face in his true perfect holiness, his holy separateness, completeness, differentness from us. And so in other words, Paul is coming face to face with God as he really is. And so check out his response. Verse 14, we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. And so their reaction, much like in other stories that we see this in the Bible, when they come face to face with God, is to fall face first to the ground. I know I used to do this, but a lot of us will have thought about, oh, if I got face to face with God, I would have a list of questions to ask him about certain things. But in the Bible, every time somebody comes face to face with God, they fall flat on their face because they can't handle it and they think they are going to die. That's how serious these moments really are. And so in a voice speaks directly to Paul. And the other times Paul tells this story, he talks about this, that his companions with him could hear some sort of noise, but they couldn't distinguish a voice within there. And so the fact that they fell, they heard a noise, shows that this was not some sort of internal individual vision just for Paul, but an external event. And so if the trial officials wanted to verify the truth of this story, they could have brought in some of Paul's companions to testify to that fact. But then Paul shares in this, when he tells the story this time, a unique statement, a phrase from Jesus. The phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's an agricultural term. A goad is a stick that is used like a whip to move an animal in the right direction. So what God is saying to Paul here is, you have been fighting against my will and the direction of what I am trying to accomplish through Jesus, through what I did through Jesus. Paul has been fighting against the truth and fighting against the revealed will of God by going after and persecuting Christians. And so then Paul is recognizing the divine authority of what's happening here. So that's why he says, Lord, but he's trying to make sure he knows exactly who it is who is speaking to him. So Jesus responds and says, it's him. But notice how Jesus says that Paul is persecuting him and not the church. And here's why. That is because the church is the body of Christ and Jesus is the head of the church. So Jesus identifies himself so directly with his people that when they suffer, he suffers. When they are persecuted, he is persecuted. And so now Paul, he has this vision And now he has incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is who he said he is, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and God in the flesh who came to live a perfect life and die in our place. And so for Paul, this also means that Jesus was resurrected, that he is alive, and that God has done it, and that Jesus Jesus has the authority to make the claims he made about himself. So in other words... This flips Paul's world completely upside down. It confirms the truth of the entire Christian message that he had been fighting against and persecuting. Verse 16. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. So the reason Jesus appeared to Paul was that he had, he had a great purpose for Paul. 
to testify to what he had seen in that particular moment and things he's going to see someday. Meaning he's going to bear witness to who Jesus is, the resurrected Messiah, rather than being a persecutor and destroyer of the church. But it's also that Paul is going to see things through revelation, that God is going to reveal things to him, the truths of what Jesus taught and what Paul then is going to teach to others. But I want you to see as well, Paul is being rescued from his old life and he's being brought to a completely new life in Jesus. We need to understand this. Christianity is not a faith of people making themselves good enough for God, but of God miraculously rescuing people when they could not save themselves. And so it happened miraculously for Paul because God has a major plan for him. Verse 17, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul was being commissioned to go and preach the gospel message to the Gentiles and not just the Jews. So Gentiles are just anybody who's non-Jewish. And so what, Paul, what Jesus was sending Paul to do is very reminiscent of what Jesus did for Paul. Paul was blinded by the bright light of the holiness of Jesus. And so he had to have someone pray for him to have his eyes open. And so thus Paul is going to do the same thing for others. He is going to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind by sharing the gospel message with them. But Paul's message includes two other things. First, to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And so this this from darkness to light means moving people from being unable to see the truth of who Jesus is, being stuck in their sin and being brought into the kingdom of God's light, being able to see the truth of who God really is. And then from the power of Satan to God, it denotes this spiritual war that is raging. You see, we always need to remember as Christians, there is a spiritual battle raging for the souls of all humans. Satan would love nothing more than to kill, devour, and destroy. And so while God instead seeks to save the lost, like a military rescue mission behind enemy lines, God sent his son, the Savior, Jesus Christ, to pull back those who are his away from the enemy's clutches. And so why is Paul to do these things? so that the Gentiles can then receive forgiveness of their sins that they sinned against God, to become part of the family of God, those who are sanctified, meaning those who are set apart, who are totally different. And this being set apart comes through placing trust, loyalty, and faith into Jesus. But remember, it would be scandalous for a first century Jew that a Gentile could become part of the family of God. They truly thought it was only for them, not really for the rest of the world. Verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. And so Paul asserts that he is being arrested because he is being obedient to God and not disobedient as the Jews claim. So because of the vision he had for Jesus, he's viewing this as like a prophetic call from the Old Testament. And so he has to obey it. He has to follow what has been given to him. So he began to preach repentance or a turning away from their old life toward Jesus to put their faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. 
But notice that Paul clarifies something about repentance here. That repentance should also be demonstrated by how a person acts. Keep this in mind. We show our salvation in Jesus is legitimate by the way that we live, by the way that we obey him. But I want us to understand something. One of my favorite authors, his name is Jared Wilson. He wrote this in a book called The Imperfect Disciple. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. This is what he had to say. The gospel is opposed to earning, but not to effort. You see, the Lord can and will do a great work in you to help you put out some effort to show that your salvation is legitimate, but not in a sense of earning. And he wants your life to match up to what you believe. And Jesus will do that work. Verse 21. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. So because he began to preach this message and included the Gentiles as recipients of this good news, he started being attacked by the Jews. They tried to kill him. And again, as I said earlier, for the Jews, it was an impossible that the Gentile, it was an impossibility that the Gentiles could join the family of God. And thus they believe Paul is preaching a totally different message that runs contrary to what they have always taught. And he's removing the lines that were drawn between Jews and Gentiles. But instead, Paul is trying to prevent himself as having a divine call from God like a prophet. And he's been doing what God has asked him to do. And God has helped him along the way. Verse 23, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so this is the real issue for the Jews. They could not believe in a suffering and crucified Messiah. For the Jews, the Messiah was supposed to be this military conquering king who would free the Israelites from their oppressors. And so for Jesus to claim to be the Messiah, then to die, and from something as shameful as crucifixion was nothing less than blasphemy to them or speaking a huge insult against God, speaking evil against God. But for Paul, this is exactly what Moses and the other prophets said would happen to the Messiah. If only we would just look and see it. And so we must understand the Jewish position here, or else we might start to judge them a little too harshly. You see, the mystery of the Messiah was like if you pulled out a puzzle. I love doing puzzles, but puzzles are very hard if you don't have the original picture that shows you what the whole picture is going to be like. If, imagine trying to do a puzzle, 5,000 know, puzzle piece puzzle, and you don't have the original picture. How hard would that, that be? And so what the Jews had is they had little individual pictures throughout the Old Testament and that they tried to, and it was very difficult to piece this together. And so Paul, the vision that he had of Jesus on the road to Damascus was that moment where it all fit together. He finally understood the whole thing. And so the Jews that Paul was dealing with on a regular basis could not conceive of the whole puzzle. And so they thought he was blaspheming, he was evil. And so in all of this, it was so that Jesus would be the light that reveals the truth of who God is and the availability of salvation to all people. And so this leads us to our second thing we need to become more bold is to proclaim how the gospel has changed you. You see, you won't have much boldness about Jesus if you don't know by experience what it is you're to be bold about. 
I want you to think for a second about some of the things you are most passionate about in your life, whether it's your kids, your hobbies, sports teams, pets, favorite movies or books. How easily can you talk about those kinds of things, but then you struggle to talk about how you follow Jesus? And let me make sure I clarify here so we don't all get a weight of guilt on us here. I genuinely believe there is a major spiritual warfare component to that issue, where many of us have believed the lies of the enemy telling us, don't be too passionate. You're going to look weird. You're going to look strange. Don't do that. We've all believed it. I've believed it. But I also believe that it is easy to be bold about something that has changed our lives or that we deeply are passionate about, that we love. So think about this for a minute. If the gospel of Jesus has not changed you to to that kind of point yet, it's time to ask Jesus to do that work in you. Because Jesus can and does do that work for every person who just simply makes themselves available to him. And so what's stopping you from making yourself available? Ask him to start that work in you today and he will be faithful to do it. My life is a testimony of the truth of that. Remember who you used to be at one point in your life and now who you are now. Even if you're not where you think you should be or where you want to be, you have been changed. You are different if you've been following Jesus and remember how he's changed you. And knowing those kinds of things can make you more bold about your faith in Jesus. Last section, verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Festus interrupted Paul right at this moment where he's starting to talk about Jesus. And he shouts, he loudly interrupts him. But you need to remember, to a Roman like Festus, resurrection was an insane concept. So it makes sense that Festus would react this way to what Paul is saying. And as well, this idea that God is reconciling and bringing together all nations under one God sounds equally insane to him. But I also think it is entirely possible to be driven insane by a lot of study and learning as I learned throughout my time while I have been in grad school because I have had several of those kinds of moments. Verse 25. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this None of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And so Paul remains respectful, and he continues to assert he's not insane. But notice that his primary audience is not Festus here. Festus says something to him, and he establishes it, but he turns right back to Agrippa. And and truly, if Agrippa is as well acquainted with the issues as Paul truly thinks, the events surrounding Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the apostles, what they're doing would have surely caught his attention because he should know the prophets. That's why Paul brought up the prophets to him. Because it's in the prophets that we see hints and glimpses into what the Messiah was supposed to be like. And Jesus fits it absolutely perfectly. Verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such A short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. 
So notice that this whole thing that's happening here is what is ultimately Paul's goal, to bring everyone, including Agrippa, to believe in Jesus. Paul doesn't see anyone outside the possibility of seeing them saved. And he doesn't do this to defend himself to talk about Jesus, but to try and attempt to bring even kings to Jesus. And so Agrippa's response is a little vague in Greek. But what we can tell for sure is that he senses Paul's motive is to make him a Christian. And he seems to respond sarcastically as if, trying, as if Paul is trying to make him an actor that is going to play as a Christian. And so in other words, Paul has not convinced Agrippa to follow Jesus at all. Verse 30. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so in the judgment of the decision makers in this case, Paul has done absolutely nothing to deserve any sort of punishment. And if he had not appealed to Caesar, he actually could be set free at this moment. And so instead, Paul is going to go stand trial before Caesar. But I want us to understand something that's very crucial because it would appear that Paul has made a major mistake here. But that is not the case, however, because Paul is surrendered to the will of God and his plan, and he knows he needs to go to Rome. And so as such, we need to do the same. We must surrender the results to God. You see, too often, I think we place the results on ourselves and make it about what we can accomplish for Jesus. And I understand this. We live in a results, bottom line type of culture in America, but this is not often the way the Lord works. He is the one who brings the results through our faithfulness to the call he's placed in front of us. And we've seen this throughout the book of Acts. The writer Luke has made it clear. The Lord is the one who grows his church. And so even when we are put into situations which seem unfair, any of those kinds of things can be used for the glory of God to bring people to him. So our job is not to make sure the results happen, but simply just be obedient and boldly sharing the gospel and allowing God to bring the results that he's going to bring. This idea has been really freeing for me to understand because I am someone who is a perfectionist. And oftentimes what happens to me is I get crippled in my idea of perfection that if I don't feel like I can accomplish perfection in doing something, for example, like cleaning my office, then I delay and put it off from doing it. But when I know that God is the one who has the results in his hands, I know that what I'm called to do is just do the absolute best I can while surrendering myself to his will and leaving the results to him. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You see, this verse is often used to defend this practice of apologetics where we have arguments and facts that back up Christianity and the truth of it. And that's a good thing to be doing. But what this verse is really talking about is that it's about giving an answer for the hope we have in Jesus. You see, our best apologetic argument is our own story and why we have hope in Jesus. 
And what Paul talked about today is the exact same thing. He has hope in Jesus because of the change that Jesus has brought into his own life. He was once an overzealous Pharisee seeking to kill Christians and squash out Christianity from its beginning, but then he was changed to become the greatest missionary of the faith. And so think about this for a minute. Who were you before you met Jesus? And how can that help you in boldly sharing about Jesus because of how he has changed you. And if you have not given your life to Jesus yet, what is stopping you when you have seen how God can miraculously change the life of somebody else, someone like Paul? And in what ways have you seen significant growth and change in how God has worked in your life? And how can you learn to surrender the results to God rather than placing them solely upon yourself? And lastly, let's remember, We can have boldness because of what God has done to change us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you have, you can change us so that we can have boldness. God, I know from my own life, God, I struggle with this idea of having boldness. God, I can give in to fear. I can give in to the lies of the enemy speaking into me, saying to be quiet, to not be too passionate, to not look too weird. But God, help us to trust you that our story, how you have worked in our lives is the best hope and apologetic answer we could ever give as to why you are God and you are the Messiah, Jesus. So Jesus, help us to be confident in that story, to know that you are the God of our lives, to know that you lead us and guide us to the truth. And Jesus, that you will help us to have boldness because of how you change us. So do that work in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.